Last time I preached a sermon was about a year and a half ago. Um, at that time, my family and I lived in Austin, Texas, and I pastored a church called Church Under the Bridge. And as the name suggests, it was an unconventional church that met in a parking lot underneath a bridge each week to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. About 40, or excuse me, about 60% of those who attended each week were homeless. They wanted to worship God. They didn't find, they didn't feel welcome in a lot of traditional churches. The other 40% of the individuals that attended were from various socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and it was a very diverse, sometimes challenging, but very rewarding experience for me. Because of, the, that, excuse me, because of the diversity there, I was better able to see the full image of God. Each week, uh, myself, along with another volunteer, would drive down two vehicles. One was a converted bookmobile bus that we used for a mobile sound system. The other was a box truck that we brought down that had all of our tables, and chairs, and supplies, two porta potties, and a hand washing station. A lot of people, when I'm telling them about that, they're like, what did that look like? So I'm going to try to help you imagine it this morning. Over here, in this section here, would have been a street, 7th Street. Oftentimes, cars would be going by, they'd honk the horn right in the middle of preaching, try to throw me off. Here and here is where we set up tables and chairs, and individuals would gather around those tables and chairs to corporately worship God in a two-hour worship service. Over on this side, there were pillars that held up the bridge. Over here is where we would have parked the box truck with all of our supplies. Back there where the sound booth is, is where we put our two porta-potties. Because obviously, in the Texas summer heat, you want porta-potties as far away from you as possible for obvious reasons. Needless to say, when we joined, when I joined the staff here at College Wesleyan, it took me a while to adjust to Sunday mornings here. <laughs> Another adjustment I had to make was to not be content in what I know. I can no longer lean on the fact that I graduated from the most prestigious of our Wesleyan universities, Southern Wesleyan University. <laughs> I had to see reading as not something that I did as a hobby or something that I did for fun, but something that I had to do for my job here. Not only have I had to increase the amount of time spending on reading, I've had to diversify the author's uh, reading from individuals that will challenge my point of view, my perspective. Men and women who are experts in their field who help me become better at my job here. Recently, um, I read something I haven't read in a while. In it, the author says, But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, 
and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. That quote was from a letter that was written April 16, 1963, from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that letter in response to the white evangelical church's criticism of the protest and the demonstrations that called for equality for all people and an end to segregation. Instead of standing alongside their black brothers and sisters, the white church criticized Dr. King and others, calling them lawbreakers, extremists, and anarchists. When I first read the letter from Birmingham jail, I remember wondering how it was that the American church in 1960 missed the mark by so much. Pastors questioned Dr. King, saying, equality and desegregation are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Christians were more committed to keeping order than to pursuing justice. Followers who, in Dr. King's words, preferred a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I read the letter from Birmingham jail first in 1999. I reread it just recently, 53 years after it was originally written. And as I reflected upon it, I discovered that most of its contents is still applicable for today's church. I'd venture to say that most, if not all, of the individuals who criticized Dr. King probably did not have relationships, at least meaningful relationships, with the people that they were complaining about, the protesters. It's easy to hold on to prejudices and biases to support systemic injustice, to be racist, when you don't have deep and meaningful relationships with people who would benefit from needed change. In today's church, collectively, we often make choices, support policy, refuse to stand against injustice because it makes us uncomfortable. And this is not because we don't care about those who would benefit from the change. Rather, we do these things, we make those decisions, we have these thoughts simply because we don't know the individuals who are impacted by our choices. And that can be people from other racial backgrounds, people in poverty, immigrants, or the millions who suffer globally because decisions we make right here. We live in a time of history that is information rich, but also in a time that is relationally starved. Major world events, natural disasters, the battle in Aleppo, Russian hacking allegations. When they happen, 
we know about them immediately. We can open up our phone, open our computer, and we have access to that right away. We can have an opinion in a matter of seconds. We can like a post on Facebook. We can tweet something on Twitter. We can write a blog post. We can take a stand without ever getting out of our chair. We have access to more information than ever before, but we are more disengaged than we have ever been. Technology, social media have allowed us to seemingly care about a person, a cause, a people group, without ever having to make a real sacrifice to show our supports. The new norm of social engagement is clicking a button on a computer. We have reached an age of what some are calling slacktivism. On top of this, Pew Research has pointed out that for 62% of Americans, social media is their sole source of news consumption. Newspapers, nightly news, NPR, traditional forms of news media are being swallowed up by the beast that is Facebook. And Facebook's realized this. Mark Zuckerberg and his team, they've actually created algorithms in the programming of Facebook to only show you the news that you care about, things that you're interested in, like kitten videos <laughs> or pictures of food, recipes, or ads that are uniquely displayed for your lifestyle. And that sounds great. We're only getting what we want. But the downside, as sociologists are pointing out, is this has created an echo chamber when it comes to getting our news. We only see what we want to see. We only hear what we've already said. We aren't challenged with differing opinions. We don't see different perspectives. We don't see how others are suffering. We are, when we are not confronted with it, it's easy to make decisions that benefit us but harm other people. As Christ followers, God has called us to be more than just slacktivists or people who make decisions ignorant of how it's going to impact another. As Christ followers, we are called to actually follow Christ. John 1 gives the clear picture of the example that Jesus has given us. He was with God. He is God. He has always been. He created all things. He is the light of all mankind. And he is the inextinguishable light that shines in the darkness. Even so, in all of his glory, he didn't capitalize on that. John 1.14 points out, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. As John Wesley puts it, in order to raise us to this dignity and happiness, the eternal word by a most amazing condescension, was made flesh, united himself to our miserable nature with all its innocent 
infirmities. And he did not make a transient visit, but tabernacled among us on earth, displaying his glory in a more eminent manner than even of old in the tabernacle of Moses. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Armchair activism and comfortable compassion is not what we are called to do because it is not who Jesus is. Jesus constantly put his privilege and his comfort aside for the sake of others. In Matthew 8, immediately after Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount, he made his way down the hillside. Immediately he was approached by a leper. Jesus didn't give him an excuse. He didn't say, hey man, I just got done preaching an amazing sermon. I'm too exhausted. Why don't you go talk to my disciples? No. He went. He touched the man and healed him. In Mark 5, when Jesus ran into the man that was possessed with the demon legion, Jesus didn't say, whoa, that's just way too messy. I'm not even going there. Instead, Christ had compassion on the man and did what he needed to do. When Jairus approaches Jesus with the news of his daughter, Jesus didn't offer to write a blog post about it. Instead, Jesus went to Jairus' home, almost trampled along the way, to go and heal Jairus' daughter. On his way to Jerusalem, knowing that when he got there, he would be crucified. Jesus was approached by ten lepers. They called out to him, asking for mercy. Jesus didn't pass the buck. He didn't tweet about it. Hashtag ten lepers. He once again healed them. There in the garden, when Peter hacked off the ear of the guard, Jesus didn't go to Facebook and immediately post, look what just happened to my enemy. Instead, he showed love and compassion, healed the guard's ear. Jesus didn't write us all off as not worth saving. He took action, became one of us, and eventually suffered a horrible death on the cross. Again and again, Jesus made himself known to us, not just through his words, but through his thoughts, through his actions, through his love, through his grace, mercy, and compassion. This is the model that we are called to live out. In several instances in the Apostle Paul's writing, he points out Christ's loving, self-sacrificial love. In 2 Corinthians 2.9, he writes, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And Paul then later expands on this idea in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. He writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. If you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We are called to be imitators of him. Writing on this passage that I just read, William Barclay said this, Christian love is that unconquered goodwill which never knows bitterness and never seeks anything but the good of others. It is not just a mere reaction of the heart, as human love is. It is a victory of the will, achieved by the help of Jesus Christ. It does not mean loving only those who love us or those whom we like or those who are lovable. It means an unconquerable goodwill even to those that hate us, to those whom we don't like, and to those who are unlovely. I'll be the first to admit this is something that is extremely hard to do. When you love others in this way, it's uncomfortable. It's oftentimes messy. And most assuredly, you will have to sacrifice something in order to do it. Before pastoring at Church Under the Bridge, I thought I knew what sacrificial love was. I thought I knew what it meant to have compassion and mercy. It didn't take long living there, serving there in Austin, to realize I didn't have any of it figured out. God used the people there at Church Under the Bridge and in Austin to help me better understand what that means, oftentimes because they were the ones showing it to me. I had to learn if I was going to see this and be able to live this out, this sacrificial love, I had to truly get to know the people that God had called me to serve. And he shaped me through those relationships. One of those relationships was with a man named Paul. Paul and I became friends. Uh, Paul is someone who has uh, a learning disability, has other challenges, um, is not homeless, but lives in a trailer by himself and oftentimes struggles with things like hygiene or how to handle money or how to interact with others. Uh, But God used Paul to show me part of his image because God's image is written on each and every one of us. One Sunday, while setting up tables and chairs there at Church Under the Bridge, Paul was maybe seated somewhere down around here towards the front. Paul jumped up from his chair and started making a beeline back towards the porta potties, moving as fast as he possibly could, determined to get there in time. 
about 10 feet from the porta potties. Paul just stopped, sat there for a moment, turned around, head hung low, and it was evident by the front of his pants, the darkening stain that was creeping down his legs, that he had had an accident. At that moment, I scrambled, looked, began looking for a pair of pants for Paul, looked on the truck, looked on the bus, went to a couple volunteers asking them, hey, did you guys bring down any clothes to donate today? Found nothing. Eventually found Paul back in his seat, scooted as tightly into that table as he possibly could out of sheer embarrassment for what had just happened. Most people would have gone home, got changed, but Paul loved God and he loved his church so he stayed. During the worship set, while off key, Paul sat there, but he sang as if God alone could hear him, as loud as he possibly could. During the preaching time, Paul followed along in his illustrated children's Bible. And every once in a while during the sermon, he would yell out, get it. Get it, was his way of saying amen. Even though he was as engaged as anyone there that Sunday, he sat there, tucked under that table, afraid of exposing his accident. After the service ended, all that had come down that day, we gathered together and shared a meal. Once ran out of food, people began dispersing back into downtown Austin, making their way home or wherever they had to go. Volunteers became, came in and began collecting the tables and the chairs, moving them back into the box truck. But Paul just sat there, again, tucked under that chair. Paul's chair, the table he was sitting at, were the last ones to remain. Everybody else had kind of cleared out, but Paul was still sitting there. Eventually, the volunteer came and looked at Paul and said, hey, you know, you're the last one. I got to collect a chair. And the volunteer grabbed the chair after Paul stood up, took it over to the truck. Another volunteer rolled the table over. At this point, it was just me and Paul sitting under a bridge in downtown Austin. And we began talking. And this lasted maybe 10, 15 minutes, talking but never addressing what had happened that morning. It's time for me to go. It's getting late. Hadn't had lunch. So I didn't tell Paul, Paul, hey, I got to go. I got to get the truck back to the office. And that's when the unexpected happened. Paul was a hugger. He came in, arms wide, and it was as if time stood still. I was Neo in the Matrix. He kept getting closer and my mind was reeling. How do I get out of this? How do I put a stiff arm him before he gets in? Do I do a spin move, juke him before he gets too close? <laughs> and as my mind is reeling, he's getting closer and closer and closer. I'm thinking, do I just point down and shake my head no? Do I call him out? And it was in that moment 
But again, I don't know if it was audible. I don't know if it was in my head. I don't know if it was something I imagined. But I heard a voice say, how do you think you smell to me? It was as if God was pointing, calling me out. Because at this point, I could smell the urine on Paul. God had just called me out. Paul gets close, and eventually he wraps me up in a big old bear hug. I'm face to face, hugging him, and it is the wettest, warmest hug I have ever received. But it was in that moment that Paul and I really connected. I'm sitting here thinking, how do I get out of this? Paul hugs me, and for the first time, says, love you, Pastor. I can no longer just care about Paul and not be concerned about his welfare. I couldn't just say your problems are not my problems. Paul and I became friends. I began learning from Paul. I realized that Paul had just as much to offer me as I had to offer him. Paul began shaping who I was. I had to realize, though, I wasn't Paul's savior. I had to get off my high horse and realize that I needed Paul as much as he needed me. The more I got to know him and others in Austin, I began rethinking what I thought I knew about people. I began caring about things that I, up until that point, hadn't cared about before. Poverty, quality education for all children, homelessness, injustices that minorities face, racial reconciliation, immigration reform, addiction, all became issues that I cared about because they were the issues that the people that I was pastoring, that I was friends with, that I loved, were experiencing. I had to change my perspective because the relationships that I had made it necessary. I could no longer say, these are not my problems because they were problems for the people that I loved. They began to teach me about their struggles. They began to teach me about their injustices. They began to teach me about their lives and how they got to the point where they were at. My perspective had to change. Over the last week, in studying these two verses, these two passages, I've come to realize that Jesus was never comfortable in his own comfort if his comfort meant that others would suffer. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And I'm pretty sure this is one of the most countercultural verses in all the New Testament. The example that Jesus lived out goes against who we are, what we've come to expect as the norm. It goes against the American way of placing our needs above those around us. 
I'm realizing we're not as good at loving our neighbors as ourselves as we think we are, or at least not when our neighbor looks different than us. We have got to learn to place others' needs above our own. One of the beautiful things about the incarnation is that God didn't just come down to tell us about himself. Instead, he lived his life and showed us who he was while showing us also who we can become. Individually, we can take on the likeness of Jesus. Collectively, we can become the body of Christ. So if self-sacrifice, humility, compassion are all central characteristics of who Jesus is, then that also means they should be central characteristics to all that proclaim to follow him. When we take on a posture that is self-centered, selfish, or one that self-promotes, we're not bearing the image of God we're actually taking away from it. Again, Christ was not content in his own comfort if that meant that others would suffer because of it. Even if that meant death upon the cross. Christ became one of us. He put on our skin. He walked in our shoes. And while he is our savior, he came in as a servant. Before he even began his ministry, he spent 30 years to discover what it is to be human. He didn't swoop in and just tell us what we were doing wrong. Instead, he walked side by side with us as we were doing it. He learned obedience through suffering alongside of us. We too must be willing to walk alongside of others, posturing ourselves like Christ, the servant, willing to learn from them, willing to acknowledge that they have value, willing to place their needs above our own. And it is then and only then that we have the right to speak truth into their lives, helping them discover all that God has called them to be. Jesus also realized that, that what was good for him wasn't always good for others. If Jesus hadn't given up his privilege, we would all be doomed to suffering, to hell, to judgment. If he refused to be obedient to the Father, we'd have no opportunity to hope for heaven. The week following the election was a really hard week for many of us. For me, it just seemed time and conversation after conversation was just heavy and weighty. A week after the election, a group of um, our brothers and sisters from Senate Vita came and joined us. And they began sharing stories with me about what was happening, happening there in Mexico. Their economy crashed overnight. Not even a week after 
the election, parents were having to decide of what, whether or not to pull their children out of school and send them to work just so they'd have enough money to have the basic needs that we all take for granted. I had numerous conversations with African-American brothers and sisters here in College Wesleyan, and they were telling me that they don't know what to expect for the next four years. They're fearful of what it means for them and their children. The Thursday after the election, I had to have a hard conversation with a nine-year-old boy at Francis Slocum. Alan, little kid I mentor, was fearful of what the election meant for him. He's a nine-year-old citizen born here in the United States, but his older brother and his parents are here undocumented. And he's sitting there wondering, is my family going to be taken away from me? It was a hard week. Many of us never would have imagined the ramifications of an election and at least would have never thought it would impact individuals the way it did. A few weeks ago, Pastor Steve pointed out that Christ is both away from and present in the world today. Dr. Smith last week pointed out that Jesus is away advocating for us to the Father. But Jesus is also present in the world today through the church, through the body of Christ. One author has pointed out, we are ready to believe that the church is the body of Christ, but we are terribly shy about believing the body of Christ is the church. God has given us the privilege of partnering with him and reconciling the world to himself. We can't be shy and timid about our calling. We can't place our needs above those of our neighbors. And this is, isn't just a metaphor of who we are. Rather, we are literally Jesus' flesh in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our world. As Jesus always set aside his privilege, his comfort for the sake of others, we, his body, must be willing to do the same. And I'm grateful as a church that we are wrestling with this comfort. We have a great partnership through Kids Hope at Francis Slocum Elementary. And any of the Kids Hope mentors can tell you that it is oftentimes messy, that it can be challenging, that it can be uncomfortable. And I'm sure each and every one of them would tell you it's worth it. We get to spend an hour a week investing in the life of a, a young child and as we get to know them, we begin caring for them. And an hour a week just is not enough. So we begin spending time with their families. We see them outside of school. We have them come to church with us. And as we do that, we learn from them. We learn that their experience oftentimes isn't our experience. And again, it changes our perspective. Outside of Slocum, we have a growing ministry at the VIP show club. Most churches would say, there's no way I'm getting near that. That's just way too uncomfortable. But I'm grateful that we have embraced that ministry. Women are coming to know Jesus. And on top of that, through the hope and the encouragement they find 
through the volunteers that go in each week, they are now realizing, I can go on back on to college. And they do that. Since we as a church began partnering there, 21 women have left the VIP show club, furthered their education, and are now in jobs that are outside the adult entertainment industry. Currently, we are taking steps to launch Immigrant Connection, a ministry that will help immigrants navigate the complex legal system and help them become documented here in the U.S. And as I've seen since the article came out in the Chronicle Tribune, it's uncomfortable for a lot of us, but we're still pushing through it. We're still working at becoming Christ to our neighbors while also taking the time to learn from them. While God is using our church, I believe we haven't yet reached our fullest potential. I believe God wants us to go even deeper into the community. But this time, not with ministry programs. I think if we're going to reach the potential that God has set forth for us, it's going to come through relationships. Relationships that each and every one of you form with people who are different than you. Whether that be racially, socioeconomically, maybe as far as education goes, any number of things. If we're going to have our greatest impact in the community, each of us have to strive to have relationships with people who are different and diverse. Trust me, the more that you have diverse relationships, the better you're able to see the image of God. Because if God created all of us in his image, and then God created us diverse, when we don't have relationships with people that don't look like us, we miss part of who it is that we're striving to see. And this is something that might come as a shock to many of you. We, as a church, need the community far more than the community needs us. It's not going to be easy. But we have to constantly strive to be uncomfortable in our own comfort. As we were thinking about our response for this week, you know, we could do the old-fashioned altar call. We're not going to do that. But what I want you to do right now is take a moment. Think about the people that are in your life. Think about that one, maybe two people who you haven't taken the time to get to know, to become friends with because of their difference, whatever that might be, has caused you to be uncomfortable. Take a, a moment. Go to God. Ask God to show you who that person is, the person you have yet to engage with because they make you uncomfortable. Take a moment and do that. Hopefully God has brought someone to your mind. I'm not going to ask you to stand or anything like that.
but I am going to ask you to commit something. I want you to commit that over the next two weeks, that person that God brought to your mind, that you'll spend an hour with that person, getting to know them, taking on a posture of a servant, walking in, not as I'm up here, you're down here, but of equals, willing to learn from them, learn from their experiences, learn from their past, learn from their background, take some time to learn from them and allow their stories, their experiences to challenge your perspective. You can do this over coffee. Maybe you want to invite them to lunch. Maybe you're really crazy and want to have them over for dinner one night. Commit to it. If God didn't give you a person, you're not off the hook. Through our ministries, Kids Hope, there at the VIP, Immigrant Connection, we can help you find people who are different than you, people who will challenge you, people who will make you uncomfortable. But when we have these types of relationships, again, the better we're able to see the image of God.